How's everybody tonight? Man, we got some awesome opportunities tonight. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 32. So if you have your Bibles with you, we invite you to join together with us. <clears throat> Remember, as uh, Jeremiah is constructed, it's put together based on topic, time period, uh, uh, series of uh, prophecies given. This particular section that we're in through chapter 33 is uh, dealing with uh, the hope for Israel. So we saw the new covenant in chapter 31, and here in chapter 32, we're going to be focused in on the restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. There's an interesting point, though. This prophecy given by Jeremiah that puts him in prison is given exactly one year before there is no such thing as Jerusalem anymore. So one year prior to the end of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's going to be rubble. It's going to be a pile of rock. Uh, all of Judah has already been conquered. So the only, the last bastion of the kingdom of Judah is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is surrounded by Babylon right now. So as we look at it in chapter 32, we see the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah in the 10th year, <coughs> excuse me, of Zedekiah, king of Judah, who was the, uh, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. So everything's going to fall the 11th year of uh, Zedekiah. So we're one year from the end, somewhere in that last year. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. So Jeremiah is in jail, which currently there are at least two pastors in California that are facing at least the threat of going to jail in our time for doing what, what uh, the Constitution guarantees them and for doing what they believe God is asking them to do, to assemble to gather together. So far as I know, neither have been arrested yet, just threats so far. And the last one I heard was a fine of $1,000 a day that they keep trying to do church. So that's both uh, John MacArthur's and Jack Hibbs. So uh, there may be others, but those are two guys, two guys I know. So um, anyways, they're, they're facing that because they're saying things people don't like to hear. In our world today, do you believe that if you stand up and share the truth of what God's, God's word says, people will like to hear it? Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to, to or nobody wants to, um, what's, a, what's a good word? They, I, they may hear it, but they are going to do everything they can to silence you, at least the powers that be. That's the age we're in now. Do you believe that during this time that, that God is in so, somehow shocked by it and caught on his heels? He didn't see the COVID thing coming. He didn't see the rise of uh, the far left. He didn't see the push towards Marxism. That's all stuff that, that God didn't know was coming. I believe God knew those things were coming, that God was and is, uh, I still believe, probably for our nation, we're in a place of judgment. We'll talk about that as we work our way through this chapter. But even in a time of judgment, God doesn't stop putting out his word. 
He doesn't stop having faithful men. The point that I'm getting to is Jeremiah was in jail because he was faithful. The armies are surrounded Jerusalem. Jeremiah has been telling the people, you're going to be conquered. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be... Now they're there. So the armies are there and the people in the city, the leadership is saying, God's going to deliver us. God's going to carry us through. This is not God's judgment. This is not, we're going to win a victory and we're going to put Babylon in their place. And meanwhile, Jeremiah is saying, that's not happening. You're under God's judgment and there's nothing you can do to win. You will be conquered by Babylon. They've already been conquered twice. The third time Nebuchadnezzar conquers, he's tired of conquering it. So he's going to make it a giant pile of rock. So in a year, there'll be no Jerusalem to go back to. You've got to read Ezra and Nehemiah to see what happens when the exiles return and the cities in rubble. So this is real for Jeremiah, and it's just amazing to me how much the parallels are in our time. Now, there, there's the, the, just a, a pretty bold push from some of the politicians in the United States that really don't care about any of this. That, which means, by the way, that they don't really care about what the Constitution says. Uh, they don't really care about what rights you have. They just care about whatever their agenda is. And I may not know what all the agenda is. I'll tell you, there are agendas everywhere. If you could follow the strings to the puppet master, we'd probably be surprised who it is. You know, ultimately, I'm, I'm assuming Satan. But um, the point is, while all that chaos is going on, while judgment is falling on our nation, while political upheaval is happening, you have 74 straight days of riots in Seattle. Do you know how long that is? I mean, that's a long, I get tired of, I can maybe go one, two days with Kathy. And then I want an end to the riot. The ceasefire, I, I quit. 74 days of rioting. And, and no sign of that slowing down, right? So, so you have this, lawlessness in the land. And it's interesting because Paul talked about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2. He said that lawlessness is going to abound. So we find ourselves in this place. The point is God needs godly men and women to stand up and speak the truth. And you need to know when you speak the truth, it will cost you. I saw a Interesting uh, um, questionnaire that had gone out to people who were registered with the left. Okay, so Democrats, two Democrats that may or may have not made a decision yet whether they're voting one way or the other in the upcoming election. And the question was, how many of you think you will lose your job if your employer knew who you were going to vote for? And the number was astounding. Of the people who are afraid to say what they would do or who they would vote for because they think who they work for would fire them for it. 
along with that also out to employers went a questionnaire about would you fire somebody who said they were voting for Trump. And there were, it was pretty astounding how many people said for sure. So you have, you have, I'm not saying Trump's all right and everything, but he's more, yeah, I'm saying Trump's all right. The, I don't know what to tell you. I didn't vote for him last time, but I'm, I'm marching in and stamping my name because the other side is so whack. You know, it's, it is utterly and absolutely insane where that is. And again, I want to just bring it around, not to talk about politics. I just want to bring it around. God needs faithful men who will stand up and say the truth, and it will cost you something. It'll cost you something. And just so you're aware, the price is going to go up the further we go down the timeline. It'll cost more. Being part of the faithful is going to cost more. It may cost you work. It may cost you friends. It may lead to persecution. Who knows? Once upon a time, <clears throat> we all thought that was ridiculous in the United States, didn't we? But you can loot, rob, steal, shoot fireworks at police, and not be arrested. But if you meet in a church building on a Sunday in California, you can be. That's not interesting. Jeremiah was speaking faithfully the, what, the, what God's word had told him for the people. And it resulted in him being imprisoned, right? It says that in verse 3, For Zedekiah, king of Judah, <coughs> had imprisoned him, saying, Why do you prophesy and says, Thus saith the Lord? Behold, I'm giving the city to the hand of the king of Babylon. Why do you keep saying that, Jeremiah? We've told you, Thou shalt not say that we're going to be conquered. And Jeremiah is saying, Look, I can't but tell you what God said. Peter and John were arrested, Acts chapter 4, around Acts chapter 4, they're arrested, brought before the same council that crucified Christ, and commanded no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. Do you remember? And Peter looked at the council and said, whether we obey God or you, you decide, but we can't do anything but obey him. We're going to do what God said. So the, the challenging thing for the people of God is that there, it will be a call in our time as there was then for men and women to be willing to stand up, <coughs> to say this is not okay. It's, it's, this is not right. Here is what the word of the Lord says. He says, you can't, we, don't, we told you, we made a law. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, made a law. Jeremiah, you can no longer say we're going to lose. And so Jeremiah said, we're going to lose. And they put him in jail. So you tell me, is it okay to defy authority? He wasn't rude. Jeremiah was not just being an anarchist, right? He's just saying, look, here's what God said. This is what the Lord has told me. Why do you prophesy thus <clears throat> that he's going to capture us? Verse 4, Zedekiah, king of Judah, 
you, this is what Jeremiah was saying. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the land, out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he will speak to him face to face and see him eye to eye. So he's telling King Zedekiah, these are specific. Zedekiah, not only are you going to be conquered by, by Babylon, but you're going to be face to face with Nebuchadnezzar. Do you know why Zedekiah was king? Nebuchadnezzar made him king. Nebuchadnezzar already conquered twice. Zedekiah is the fourth king. Egypt deposed the king and Babylon deposed two others. Now Zedekiah is the last one. And the only reason he's king, not because of some special thing, was simply because Nebuchadnezzar said, look, if you'll obey me, you can be king. The people can stay here. They can live. All you got to do is follow the rules. But they rebelled, and he comes for the last time to destroy him. He's going to be face-to-face with the guy who gave him his job. How do you think that's going to go? How does it go for you when you have rebelled against the one who gave you whatever you have? So that's, that's a, a drag. That meeting will be a bummer, right? How much more so, the Bible declares, is it when we fall into the hands of God, having rebelled against him. You think Zedekiah's meeting with Nebuchadnezzar was going to be bad. It's a fearful thing, the word says, right? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Nobody's going to be all bold. Say they have all these things, they're going to tell God. You're not going to say nothing. You'll do what we all do. Every time somebody sees an angel, they're on their face. You see God? Yeah. Here's the good news. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll be covered by his arms, and he will stand you up and present you before the Father without fault, blameless. <clears throat> Not because you are, but because he is. And we have trusted in him. <clears throat> so he says, He shall take Zedekiah to Babylon. And there he will remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. So he says, Zedekiah, you're going, and God's saying, you and me are going to have a meeting too. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. This is what God had told Jeremiah. This is what had landed him in jail. So in verse 6, it says, So Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. So he's in prison. Behold, Hanamel the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you. And he's going to say, buy the field that is in Anathoth for the right of redemption to purchase is yours. Now this will be the, the possibly the worst real estate investment known to mankind that's about to take place. So Anathoth is three miles from Jerusalem. Everywhere in Judah has been conquered. Every place around Judah has been destroyed. The last bastion is Jerusalem. And so one of Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's uncle, is going to come to him and say, hey, you want to buy the field in Anathoth that Nebuchadnezzar just destroyed that doesn't really belong to me anymore? It belongs to Babylon? Would you buy it? So the Lord is telling Jeremiah and this is important for us because it, it points to the, the seriousness of God's promise 
for restoration. So the same Jeremiah who says you're under judgment and there's nothing you can do to win, God's saying, I want you to buy that. I want you to buy it. I want you to show the people that the land is still going to be theirs. This is judgment. This is not the end. So he's laying this through for them. He's going to come to you. Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard <coughs> in accordance to the word of the Lord as the Lord gave me and said, buy my field that is in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So Jeremiah's in prison. <laughs> it's crazy. And the Lord speaks to him. Hey, Jeremiah, I want you to buy the land from, from your uncle. And then his cousin comes to him and says, hey, will you buy this field? And Jeremiah's like, man, the Lord just told me about this. The Lord just laid this on my heart. that This, is, this was coming. And so he, he says, the right of possession and redemption is yours to buy it. So verse 9. So I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Now that was not top dollar, even in their day. 17 shekels of silver is apparently what it costs to sell somebody a field you don't own anymore. <laughs> right? What are you going to do? Jeremiah is in jail. Listen, when Jeremiah buys this land, I want you to understand, he will never, ever see it. He won't ever put a foot there. What he's doing is laying out faith in the promise of God that one day his relatives will return to the land and that will be their land. Because Jeremiah has the title deed to the property. He is putting, banking on the promises of God. The same guy who said, there's nothing you can do, Babylon's going to win, is buying the property and saying, but one day, what? You're coming back. This is how it is now. But every time Scripture lays out for us this concept of God's judgment, you also have the concept of God's redemption and restoration. And this is what is being illustrated by what Jeremiah is doing. So he pays 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, <coughs> excuse me, got witnesses, weighed out the money on scales. I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. Now, he's in jail. He, normally, you would do this in the city gate where, where all the rulers are, but he doesn't have his freedom anymore. Nobody's letting Jeremiah out of jail. So he's sitting in jail, and so he gets all the other people to in jail to witness it, the, the jailers, the officials that are a part of there, they all sign the documents. Official, official title deed. He gives it to Baruch. He, he is saying, look, we went through it all. We did escrow. We signed the papers. We did everything. This is not just a, hey, you know, 
some buy it, okay, well, I, gave him, I gave him 10 bucks for land and now it's mine. No, they did it all. I also want you to understand that that cost Jeremiah something. The scripture will tell us that during the siege, a loaf of bread might as well have been a bar of gold. Do you think that 17 shekels of silver would have come in handy to feed him? You don't really believe that jail in those days and in that land, they gave you food, right? You only got the food people brought you. You only were clothed with the clothing somebody brought you. There are still countries around the world today that if, no, if you have no family members, you die in prison. They, didn't, they don't take care of you. So that 17 shekels that would have come in handy. Thanks, man. That 17 shekels could have come in handy, could have fed him, could have helped him be able to purchase some of the uh, it's water. My body doesn't know what to do with it. <coughs> yeah, man. It's good, though. It's crazy, huh? Just what the body needed. <clears throat> so it would have come in handy to feed him, to, to provide his needs. But God said, I want you to take 17 shekels of silver. I don't know how much money Jeremiah had, but I doubt he's making much in prison. You think? So there was a price to being obedient to what God asked him to do. And that's going to bring us to a point that Jeremiah is going to ask the Lord, hey, what was that about, God? You ever have questions for God about things that have come up? Listen to what he tells Baruch. Verse 13, so I charged Baruch in the present, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and the open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that may last for a long time. Anybody know how long those last? About 2,000 years later, a boy in Qumran threw a rock in a cave. That's a story. Heard something break, went inside, and found what we call today what? The Dead Sea Scrolls. So they last a long time. It needs to last 70 years. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest one, is at least a thousand years earlier than anything else we had. That's a long time, right? Put them in earthenware. They got to last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. So God is saying to him, look, I'm not making, God's promise all along was, look, you are, and we'll see it in scripture, you are under judgment for disobedience to me. This is why. Here's what's happening. You're going into exile, but I'm not making a full end. I'm not destroying the nation. I'm not done with it. I am putting you aside, and I'm going to bring you back. I'm setting you aside, and I'm going to bring you back. You have the promise of the new covenant where God says, I'm going to change your heart because what you as a people are illustrating to the world is that man can't do this apart from me changing him. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, we, don't, we continue to do the same things. You think this is new history we're living now? This is the same old tired rerun. 
over and over again. Unless man surrenders to the Lord, is born again, right? John chapter 3 has the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his life to give him a new heart, make him a new creation. And so that was the promise of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 32, he's saying, look, I promise I'm going to bring you back. I will bring this people back. There will be houses, fields, vineyards again bought in the land. Jeremiah, you illustrate it from jail for all those people who are starving to death outside because they won't obey my word. Make sure they know the promise. They're going to be brought back. Those who survive will be brought back to the land. So after I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. So Jeremiah does it all. Okay, God, I'm doing it, but I don't really understand what I just did. So Jeremiah is going to pray, and he's going to say that. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth with the great power of your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, who do you think Jeremiah is reminding that? Do you think God needs to know that? Do you think Jeremiah is reminding God that he's all-powerful? Who's Jeremiah reminding? Why is it important when we pray and that we praise, that we, that we call out who God is and what he's done? It's not for God doesn't need to be reminded. It's I that need reminded. I need reminded there's nothing God can't do. Every day I get up, I probably spend, however many hours a day I spend, Reading the word, there is an alternate part of that where I spend looking at the horrific news of the world. And I have to remind myself that there's nothing God can do. I get it looks hopeless, and I again, I think we're under judgment, and these are the things that are going to happen in God's people. That if there is such a thing as a silent majority, silent majority needs to stop being silent. That time, time for that, that ship sailed. It's time to stand up. It's time to stand up and be like Jeremiah, crying on the corner. And I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't have a lot of faith in politicians. Uh, I get lots of letters every time I say that. Sorry. I don't have a lot of faith in politicians. I have a lot of faith in Jesus Christ. So I'd rather stand on a corner and call people to repentance then stand on a corner and, and tell them how to vote. But I think if people are called to repentance, that will be directed if you're going to vote according to biblical principles. There are certain things you, you can't possibly find a solution for if you go one direction over another. <clears throat> so... We have to say, what are we, what, are, what is he doing? He's saying, Lord, I know you're able to do everything. You're able to grant victory. You're able to deliver us. No matter who wins in November, is God able to deliver his people? For sure. Does that mean we won't, it won't be hard? No. It will be. But does that mean then we shouldn't, we, we have to remind ourselves there's nothing God can't do. So if he wants me to stand up and be counted, to share my faith at work, to do the things <clears throat> that I think God's calling us to do, if he wants me to do that, he'll give me what I need. There's nothing he can't do. This is why Jeremiah is reminding himself, I'm in jail. There's an army. There's nowhere to run. There's even less places for Jeremiah to run because he's locked up. 
right? So if somebody lights the jail on fire, what happens to him? Yeah, it's not good. It's not good. So he's reminding himself, there's nothing too hard for you. <clears throat> Verse 18, he, he reminds himself of God's compassion. You show steadfast love to thousands. So God, he's saying, Lord, you are, that's the word chesed. It's the, it's the word for loyal love. It's the Hebrew equivalent of agapeo, agape love. This is God's loyal love for his people. He's like, God, you love me. I'm in jail. When John the Baptist reaches out to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? Why does John the Baptist do that? Jesus, in his response to him, is saying, hey, blessed is he who's not disappointed because of me. I still love you, John. You're, the, you're the, the best of men, the last of the prophets. You're, you're an incredible person, and I love you, but you're still in jail, and I'm not getting you out. Because God's love is not predicated on our circumstance. Love is never predicated on circumstance. God loves regardless. Whether your belly's full or your belly's empty has no indication on God's love. He says, I love you. So he reminds himself, God loves me. He has a loyal love for me. And God will judge the guilty, right? You repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. Great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of the angel armies. That's that phrase. Yahweh Sabaoth. You are the God of the angel armies. So you're the judge. You're in charge. And I know you love me. And I know there's nothing you can't do. All right. This is not something that God has forgotten. This is, these are things Jeremiah is reminding himself in his prayer. Right. I know that, that you love me. I know that you care about me. I know that your counsel is correct. Look, verse 19, great in counsel, mighty indeed, <clears throat> whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of men. So you haven't lost sight of me. It's not that God was ignoring me and oops, I ended up in jail. That was not part of God's purpose for Jeremiah. Jeremiah's right where God intended for Jeremiah to be. And Jeremiah's reminding himself, hey, you know what you're doing, God. You're in charge. You know what's happening. You reward everyone according to the way, to his ways, and according to the fruit of his deeds. So God, I know that you judge righteously and that you're good. Again, he's reminding himself, I know your character. Verse 20, you have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. You are able to deliver. You have delivered in the past. You deliver us still today. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, a strong hand, an outstretched arm, and with great terror. You, I know who you are. I'm reminding myself of all these things. And you gave your people this land that you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, confirming the promises of God. You keep them. And they entered and took possession of it. But they did not obey your voice or walking, walk according to your law. They did nothing of all you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made this disaster come upon them. They did not obey. And you, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's the landlord of it all. 
He's the sovereign over it all. So to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, to rebel against the earthly king, uh, they, they had worse than that rebelled against the heavenly king. So they were in a position where they were receiving this judgment. And so you give, have given the city away. Verse 24, behold, siege mounds have come up to the city to take it because of sword, famine, pestilence. The city will be given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke will come to pass. Behold, you see it. Here's the question. But Lord, you wanted me to buy the field. Buy the field for money and get witnesses. Though the city's falling into the hands of the Chaldeans. So Jeremiah reminding himself of the power of God, the love of God, the work of God, is asking God, well, why do you want me to do this? Why, why is this what you have called for me to do? So God responds to him in verse 26. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Now I've talked with you guys about this before. I want to encourage you again in it. The concept of the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, can also mean the word of the Lord came to me. In other words, I don't mean Jeremiah got a thought in his head. I mean God the Word came to Jeremiah. There are times in Ezekiel's prophecies where Ezekiel will say, the Word of the Lord came to me and he touched me. The idea of the presence, more than just a concept flowed through my mind, the presence of God I'm not saying that he was there. I'm just saying it's possible, right? That the word of the Lord, when a word of the Lord came to him, that this is God the word coming to Jeremiah. <clears throat> and he says, behold, I am the Lord. That's a weird thing to say if you're just having a thought, right? Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? So he's affirming what Jeremiah said. Lord, I know you can do all things. And then, and then the Lord says, hey, is anything too hard for me? Including buying a field that doesn't mean anything? Is that too hard? You ever think about all the things God's asked his people to do in the Bible? How many of them were crazy? Uh, take down the battle of Jericho. Let's just march around the city. Abraham, take the son, your only son, the one whom you love, to a mount that I will show you and there offer him as a burnt offering to me. That's not crazy. Or showing up to Abraham in the first place when Abraham's hanging out in Ur of the Chaldees and he's happy. Relatively so. And God says, hey, Abraham, why don't you go to a place that I will show you? Just wander around the desert. I'll tell you when to stop. That's not crazy. There are a lot of things that God calls his people to that we might say when we look at it, Ah, that's crazy. But the Lord would say, is anything too hard for me? What did Abraham believe when he took his son to the mountain? Abraham thought he was going to sacrifice his son. But what did he believe? The writer of Hebrews tells us Abraham believed that God would raise him from the dead. Because his promise was in his son. And God won't break his word to me. The people that marched around Jericho, what did they believe? They believed that God would be faithful to do what he said he would do. If you obey me, I will deliver. 
These are the things that God's people need to remember, need to hold on to. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving the city into the hands of the Chaldeans, <clears throat> into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against the city will come and set the city on fire and burn it. So that doesn't sound good for Jeremiah right now, right? He's locked in the city. The houses and whose roofs and offerings have been made to Baal, the drink offerings that have been poured out to other gods that have provoked me to anger, all those are going to burn. The Lord's going to burn it all down. Remember, Jerusalem's going to be gone after this. For the children of Israel, the children of Judah, have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. This is the condition of all mankind. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, that is the condition of all. What makes you righteous is not your righteous deeds. What makes you righteous is the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us clean from all our sin. Jesus Christ makes me righteous. He who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice that I might become what? The righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. I don't get righteous because of my obedience. I get righteous because of my faith in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches throughout. You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would boast. We are saved by the grace of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. You are all guilty, he's saying. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands. You have done nothing but provoke me. The city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day that it was built to today. So the, the Lord's saying, your whole history is this history of rebellion against me. So I will remove it from my sight because of the evil the children of Israel, the children of Judah have done to provoke me to anger. And he's going to decide who are these people? They're kings, they're officials, they're priests, they're prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Is there anybody left off of that list? That pretty much covered everybody, right? From the top to the bottom, everybody's guilty. Everybody stands guilty before God. Why? They have turned to me their back and not their face. Open rebellion against God. What has God provided for mankind? In our time, we have the new covenant. He's provided the blood of Jesus Christ. To reject Jesus Christ is to rebel against God. You are in open rebellion to the God of the universe. To receive Jesus Christ, you have bowed the knee to him. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and now our responsibility with our new heart as a new creation is to follow him, right? What he says. Follow Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible does it say follow Republicans or for that matter to the Democrats or the Constitutionalists. I'm not making any statement about any of those groups. Who do we follow? Jesus, Jesus. And if anything in any of those other groups is in opposition to Christ, 
you better be following Christ. Period. We, we want to be men and women who are following him. They have turned their back to me, not their face. Listen, and though I have taught them persistently, so he had given them the prophets, right? They had the word of God. Romans says, to what advantage did the Jew have? What was the advantage for the Jew? According to Romans, they have the oracles of God. Though I had persistently taught them, they have not listened or received instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name. So they put up idols in the temple to other gods. They worshiped other gods through idolatry in the temple of God. Verse 35, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Jesus called that place Gehenna, where the fires burn and the worm never dies. He used the valley of the son of Hinnom to describe hell. They built the high places of Baal to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech, a thing I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Specifically what God mentions in this judgment, their rebellion against God, they give their back, not their face, <clears throat> idolatry, false worship, and sacrificing children to Molech. Now, I have no idea how many children they could have offered, but I have a hard time believing it's more than have been offered in the United States of America. We're somewhere in a neighborhood of 60 million now. And we go one step further, we sell their parts. If you think God is righteous in judging Judah and you think he's not righteous in judging us, I think you're crazy. We are the worst nation on earth for sacrificing children. On top of that, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the internet is so able to squelch everything you want to say about one thing or another, but they can't seem to get child porn off. How is that possible? I'll tell you, they don't want it gone. You say, Jackie, you're crazy. I would have said I was crazy too until Jeffrey Epstein... And then you start talking about all the people that were on his plane. And you got the high and mighty of the entire nation in some way linked to that guy. We, as a nation, are guilty before God. And we deserve that judgment. And judgment begins where? Because you can say all you want that we were a silent majority upset at it. 
But the word of God declares that we're to stop. I don't know. I'm not, I don't have answers for hows. I just know we're supposed to be apart. Our Secretary of State four years ago traveled the world to make abortion on demand a possibility in every nation. Ambassador of our country. The Lord said, I didn't even think about this, never even entered into my mind. This has aroused my anger. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say, it has been given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Oh, do you ever think about how we're enduring those three things right now? Sword, 74 days of riots. God help you if you live in a big city. If you lived in Chicago, murder rate is up over 300%. That's crazy in a place where they have no guns. They must be beating each other with rocks, sticks, right? But the last night, the last time they had riots in Chicago, there was a dude shooting a window. How could he shoot a window if they don't have no guns? Hmm. Interesting. By a sword, by pestilence. What's that? What do they call that thing we're dealing with right now? Oh, pandemic. We don't call it pestilence. Famine. I don't remember the last time I walked into a store and saw empty shelves before these days. And you're not even feeling the effect of the shutdown economy yet. But it's coming. He says, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. That's crazy. That's crazy. Look, it, is, it has been given to the hand of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries. Now, this is where we're switching, okay? We've had all the bad news. Here comes the good news. Yay, Kathy said, Lord, have mercy. Okay, <clears throat> behold, I will gather them from all the countries where I drove them in my anger, my wrath, and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. I will make them to dwell in safety. They will be my people. I will be their God. Listen, I will give them one heart and one way that they might fear me forever. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, the sovereign, the ruler of all the universe. I will show them and that they will not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with, I've never seen God say this before. So Bible students, you go find it. I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. It's usually what God's asking us for, right? All our heart, all our soul, God said, it. it's gonna be my great joy to do good. There will be a day. Thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all this disaster upon the people, I will bring upon them all the good that I promise them. Fields will be bought in this land, which you are saying is a desolation without man or beast given to the hands of the Chaldeans. Fields will be bought for money. Deeds will be signed, sealed, and witnessed in the land of Benjamin in the, in the places of Jerusalem, <clears throat> in the cities of Judah, 
in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. So in a small picture, God is saying, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the small picture and put it over history. He's saying, look, Israel, you've done this, you've disobeyed, judgment has come, but this is not the end. There is a day of restoration. There will be a regathering. Listen, God is promising. There's, there's five things. Last thing I want to share. Five promises God makes to them that he makes to us. There will be a regathering. One day, all the people of God will be gathered together at home with our God and King, Jesus Christ. There will be a regathering. God hasn't lost anybody. And there will be a relationship with him. They shall be my people and I will be their God. There's a regathering, a relationship, a restoration. And I will give them one heart and one way, unity in Christ Jesus. We struggle to achieve that today in a period of time where our salvation is working through sanctification. It is a, a process that's happening. Jesus has guaranteed it, but there's still a thing we go through where we still mess up, right? But there will be a day, one heart. One heart, no more, no more, no more backbiting, no more fighting, no, none of that will be all gone. There will be utter restoration and God says, I'm going to do good for their good and the good of their children and all the people's, it will all be. There is coming a day of restoration. There is coming a day of redemption. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. The scripture says, the Lord said in John chapter 14, that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to bring you unto myself that where I am, what? You will be also. For how long? Forever. There will be a day of absolute redemption in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now for the children of Israel, they were in dark times. We may look around and say, we're in dark times, but that's not the end of our story. That's not the end. The end of our story is a day of, of regathering. The end of our story is a day of relationship, absolute, total, face-to-face -face relationship with God. There is a day of restoration where all good things will come together. There's a day of redemption where God redeems all things, this earth will be redeemed, restored, a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with Jesus Christ for how long? Eternity, right? We, we, we don't even, our brains melt when we try to, to think about it and figure it out. And there will be a time of rejoicing together while God rejoices in us and we rejoice in him. Yeah, the days were dark for Jeremiah is in prison. But as God answers his prayer, yep, I get it. All these things are true. This is all going to happen. All of these things, you're going to endure difficult days ahead. But there will be regathering. There will be relationship. There will be restoration. There will be redemption. And there will be rejoicing. For while sorrow comes in the evening, joy comes when? in the morning. So just like all the saints of old, what does God call us to do? We endure the hardships with our eyes set on the prize.
And the prize is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, who is preparing a place for us and one day will bring us to him. Yes? Until that time, what do we do? We do business. We do what he's asking us to do. We are his Jeremiah. We are his Isaiah's. We are his Ezekiel's. We are his hands and feet. We are the voice. We are those who are filled with the Holy Spirit and able to go and be who God's asking us to be. In a dark world that is in rebellion against the king, God's calling us to call them to repentance and life and the same promise that we will enjoy. Even though it's dark, the day is coming. And God's people everywhere put their eyes on the prize, hoping for the day and enduring whatever comes. Because our God is able to make us strong enough for whatever we have to face. Amen? He will give us everything we need for whatever we face. And whether we're hungry or filled, whether we're in prison doing prison ministry or free, doing ministry around the globe. Whatever we're doing, God loves us. He'll care for us. He's able to do it. And there will be a day that will make it all worth it. Amen? Why don't you stand with me let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the promise of your word. For though, because Lord, honestly, I know sometimes we, we look at Jeremiah and we say, oh my gosh, bad news upon bad news upon bad news upon bad news. But the point is, you're telling us the truth. Here's the truth. We're not getting better. We keep repeating the same mistakes. We, we are being called as your people to rely on your Holy Spirit to equip us to, to do better, to be called out, to draw men away from destruction into life to turn their back on all the things that seem right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. We're called to draw men to Jesus Christ. Not to, not to me. I'm going to bring people to Jesus. I want to be like Andrew. Everywhere he went, he was finding somebody and saying, you got to come talk to Jesus. I want to be like the Samaritan woman that Jesus talked to in John chapter 4, who went around to all the people who had called her a tramp all her life and said, come see the one who has given me the reason for life. He showed me everything I've ever done. Come and see. This is the message of hope we have. Not, the message is not that the world is going to change and we're not, nothing bad's ever going to happen. Jesus never tells us that. He says the world's going to persecute you. The world's going to be a hard place. It's going to be a harsh place. There's going to be difficult days. But know this, I have overcome. And I am in you. So you can be overcomers too. And so we endure with our eyes on the prize awaiting the sound of the trumpet and the call of Christ. But not to ignore everything that's around us, but rather to engage. Not to be silent and just accept the evil of men because men are evil, but to call men from their evil deeds. Repent. Repent. 
if nobody is there calling men to repent, we miss our call. Turn from your evil deeds and trust in Christ and live. Live for the hope of a deliverer for our deliverer is coming. Job said, I know that my redeemer lives and he will set his feet on the earth. Even Job lived looking to the hope of his deliverer. He didn't know his name. We do. His name is Jesus Christ. God, may we, your church, stand and be the men and women you're calling us to be in dark times. And may we not put our hope in all the systems of men, but may we put our hope in our great God and Savior. May we pray for our leaders. May we be engaged in the process. May we, as we, as we cast our votes and our hope, Consider what God's word teaches and do what God's word calls us to do. But in the end, may we put our trust in Christ for you are our deliverer. And God, I do pray that you would turn our nation around and that this is not the death rattle of Jerusalem here in the United States, but a call to repent, believe, turn to Christ and live. And may we be your faithful servants in that call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.